Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 231. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me this week is me. Jay will be back probably next week, my semi-permanent co-host, hence the semi-permanent. But this week, I want to get into a few things. First is, there was a headline recently in, somebody passed this to me, I think it was a Bank of America research report. And the title was, the cheapest put you've ever seen. In other words, the cheapest protection you could ever buy, apparently, is right now. So I wanted to delve into that a little bit and just kind of explain what that means. What what are we talking about as far as hedging? What the benefit is for those of you in a hedged equity strategy? And by the way, you've heard me say this before. That is one of the foundational things that we do if you want info on that how we hedge portfolios and markets, uh, help you keep invested, hit me up at derek.moore at zegafinancial.com. That's Z as in zebra, E as in Eddie, G as in George, A as in Apple. Uh, Financial is up to you to spell correctly. Okay, so what somebody passed me was Bank of America, and it it was actually titled The Cheapest Put You've Ever Seen? Question mark. And what they did was, now, when they say ever, I, I kind of couch this a little bit. The, the graph I'm looking at that uh, uh, looks like it's from B of A, and I think Bloomberg also had a uh, – Bloomberg may have done something like this as well because there's a graph I also saw from Bloomberg. But it, it's showing going back to 2008. And when they say the cheapest put ever, what they're looking at is the 95% put. And I believe what they're referring to is 95% of spot. That's a really complicated way of saying, you know, if if you're trading at a, if let's say a market's trading at 100, the 95% put, I believe they're saying is the 5% down. So the 5% out of the money. So on $100, let's say XYZ is $100. And you'd be looking at the 95 strike put, which is 5% down. But they're doing this on the S&P. And they showed a chart, and basically they're saying, and quote, it has never cost less to protect against an S&P 500 drawdown in the next 12 months. As high rates align with low implied volatility and correlation to offer a historic entry point for hedges, the all-time low cost of protection is striking in an environment with 3 to 4% inflation, a real threat of recession, extreme macro volatility, and high S&P valuations, despite high interest rates and a shaky Fed put. As a result, we find it sensible to buy long-dated S&P put, puts and put spreads for a lower price even than in 2017, a year that broke several historic records for equity market complacency. So that, and by the way, I was reading, uh, I was quoting uh, what somebody sent me, and this is their words, not mine. But it sort of lines up. I mean, one of the foundational things we do is this this whole buy and hedge approach. And when you think about buying and hedging is really buying the market, but having a hedge protection against downside. And the benefits of buying and hedging or having a hedged equity strategy, as we say, is the idea that you can remain invested in the market. You're not trying to time the market. We know how difficult that can be. 
And hedging does have an opportunity cost. The opportunity cost to hedge is that in order to have protection on, you either forgo some of the market upside uh, or there's a, a little bit of a cost in, in buying that protection. And so, you know, we think about buying hedge, we like to say, you know, looks to target about 70, 75% of the upside, but puts a floor in markets. Usually the goal is no more than 10% down in, in a 12-month period. So you give up something, but what they're alluding to here is that the cost right now to buy protection vis-a-vis puts in something like the S&P 500 is really cheap. It's really cheap. And you've heard Jay and I talk about this in the past. It's kind of like if you live in Florida and a hurricane, Category 5 hurricane is off the coast, and you call your insurance company and say, hey, I'm thinking about buying hurricane insurance. I don't have it right now. I'm thinking about buying hurricane insurance. What do you think they're going to say to you? Are they going to say, yeah, sure. We'll give you the lowest price ever on hurricane insurance. Or, yeah, you can have hurricane insurance, but it's, it's going to cost you. So it's one of those things that sometimes people want protection. They want hedges when markets are falling apart. And I'm not saying markets are and aren't going to fall apart. But they often want it when everybody else wants it too. And that's one of the things you see. You see volatility levels increase. Implied volatility levels go up. The premiums and options go up as well. And so often you kind of look and, and say, you know what? I think, especially for the right portfolios and, and for people it makes sense for, which is a lot of people who worry about markets going down, who worry about protecting the assets, worry about a lot of these things. It makes sense to own insurance when it's really cheap. And so kind of put some, some other things on here. And if I look at this graph, um, trying to decide how much technical stuff I want to get into. There's some things about skewing here. Um, but one of the things they put in here too is they looked at SPX, that's the S&P 500 index, and they said, you know, what's the cost of 95% of spot premium? 95% of spot, I believe, is saying the 5% down uh, level. And then the 75% of spot put premium, that would be about, you know, 75% of the spot, so that's about 25% down. And then they also look at the idea of buying a spread, like buying, I assume, long the, the 90 5% down and, and the short the 25% down. So these are really interesting things. And they also talk about the payoffs. So, for example, the payoff of buying a spread, the less you spend on protection, if markets were to go down, and especially if they go in the money or volatility increases, what they're saying here uh, in this piece that was uh, passed along to me, is that the payoff ratio is actually higher. Okay, so that makes sense. So I think I'll save some of the, the skew stuff. That starts to get a little bit wonky, and it's tough to do just verbally without some charts and things like that. But I will say, um, and I've been seeing the same things, the idea that this difference in skew, meaning what is the really, really short term, the, the nearest to us right now to expiration, uh, let's say S&P puts versus 
further out things. And some of that skew is getting really the differential there is, you know, getting, um, getting into the really high percentiles of, of what that normally means. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything for our conversation, but, um, you know, I think it's worth noting. So what can you take from something like this? Why, why is this important to think about as maybe an investor? I would think about this as number one is why not be hatched? Why not buy insurance, quote unquote, vis-a-vis market protection when it's really, really cheap? In other words, people don't necessarily want it. It's, it's sort of on sale. And I'm not saying that, that you'll absolutely cash in. I'm not saying that it's, you know, the market's going to go down. But it's just when it's on sale, when it's cheap, that's a great time to, to be hedged because the cost of hedging on an annualized basis goes down. The other thing is that right now, I mean, they kind of mentioned it in some of the things that was passed to me, you know, talking to advisors, talking to clients and, and just market participants, a lot of people are looking at the market valuations and look at forward PE ratios and forward PE ratios on the S&P 500 are getting up towards 20. I'm not saying the market's going to go down from here. I don't know what's going to happen. I know we do a prediction show in December and we have fun with it. But the reality is we buy in the market. The most fundamental thing we do, the the cornerstone is buying and hedging or buying and buffering for longer market exposure. But it's one of those things where you just say, okay, if you're worried about this and this and this, having some some cheap protection is a great way to, to one, put yourself at ease, but two... If you think the markets are too high, if you think the markets are going to go down, and I'm not saying that's going to happen, uh, boy, it's awfully cheap to uh, to hedge right now. So I just thought that was an interesting piece, and I wish it went back further before 2008, because my guess is that 2006, seven, um, I'd, I'd have to go back and look. Um, you know, I. I probably should have done that. I probably could have pulled those up and and looked at the uh, the same options and seen what the you know the the cost of hedge is. But uh, again, it's all, going back all the way to two thousand eight. It hasn't been cheaper. It hasn't been cheaper. And if you want to buy protection when everything's falling apart, be my guest. It's going to be really expensive. All right. The other thing I wanted to talk about this week is. NASDAQ rebalancing came and went. And what does that mean? Well, the NASDAQ actually, some of the companies, uh, I think it was the top companies wound up being like, I don't know, 64% or no, I'm sorry, 54% of the whole index. So I think, you know, NVIDIA, was it Microsoft, Apple, a bunch of these. They, yeah, they wound up being pretty, pretty top heavy. And so what they did was they did a little bit of rebalancing to, to keep those companies uh, or, or bring down the, the weighting, the percent weighting of the total index of those companies. And some people thought it would be a big deal. Sometimes rebalancing are more important than others as far as market participants. And, but yeah, not, not too much. Uh, so July 24th, uh, actually July 25th, 
And this is from, let me see, this is from the street. So the NASDAQ 100 has been getting progressively more top-heavy for a while, as has the S&P. And the Magnificent Seven stocks, which is Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, slash Google, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Facebook are now Meta. And so basically, yeah, 54% of the NASDAQ 100, those seven uh, stocks made up. And one, I think in the NASDAQ 100, some of the guidelines are the aggregate weight of the five largest market caps in the index could be no more than 38.5%. And I think they had gotten to about 45%. And there's also a limit of 4.4% of the index on individual components outside of the top five. And so since we're talking about the Magnificent Seven, like they're saying Tesla and Facebook were right near that 4.4 level. So what does that mean? It means they they adjusted the index a little bit. And so if you think about uh, somebody like Apple, they might have brought them down. Here they gave an example. July 10th, they were 12.31% of the NASDAQ 100. They came down to looks like 1163 uh, percent. Uh, Microsoft had a, a 2%, 2.83% change going from 12.67% of the index to 9.84. These are old, you know, as the markets go up or down, this is a market cap weighted indice, in index. So number of shares times the price of the stock. And they brought up some, the weighting of other companies. And so what that means is if you're an index fund and you had a NASDAQ 100, you would, in theory, have to sell some shares in some of these, maybe buy some shares in others. So you see that sometimes, and uh, you know, NVIDIA and Microsoft are the ones that uh, took the biggest haircut, and some other ones got increases in weight. Okay, so not too much on that. But it does bring up an interesting point about the S&P 500 and sort of what the, what the criteria is to be in the S&P 500, when do they change the membership? Do they, I mean, they, they do rebalancing, usually quarterly rebalances. I'd have to look at the, I think the last one they did was near the end of June. But in order to be included in the S&P 500, and why this matters, because a lot of people have been saying, wait, when are we going to see Airbnb or when are we going to see some of these, you know, XYZ company, whatever it is? Well, the S&P, it has to be a U.S. company. It has a minimum threshold for market cap. Uh, shares have to be liquid. 50% or more of the outstanding shares have to be available for the public. And it has to have had a, re- a positive earnings report in the most recent quarter. And you might remind her that's one of the things that, that Tesla kind of got in the way of them. And, and again, so I'll point out too that there's a committee who decides this. So it's not an automatic thing. The committee meets and in a weird way, it's a passive index, but it's sort of active in who the memberships are. You know, they could have put, uh, you know, Blackstone is a company. Uh, actually, I'll get to Blackstone and, and Airbnb, but they could have put other companies in recently. I'll give you an example. Dish Network on June 20th was removed from the S&P 500. And Palo Alto Networks was put into the the, uh, the index. And they take companies out if they no longer qualify or if there's an issue. Sometimes there's a merger. So if two S&P companies merge, 
Well, now you're a company down and you need another one, right? Uh, to give you another couple of recent, recent ones, First Republic Bank, remember they had some issues with their deposits and their balance sheet. They were removed in May and Axon Enterprise uh, was put into the S&P 500. I don't know that company, but March 20th, Fair Isaac was put in. Lumen Technologies was taken out. Back in March, you know, SVP, the bank that uh, went into receivership, Signature Bank, the, the one that went into receivership as well. They were taken out of the S&P 500. Other companies were put in. So there's any number of reasons why they're taken out. And this is kind of a below-the-radar thing. And I've always been fascinated by this idea of the index, the index changes. Because remember, when we look at earnings estimates on the S&P 500, those are encompassing and aggregating all of the earnings for all the companies together in the S&P 500. And so let's say you take out a company that earns a billion dollars a year or earned a billion dollars last year in, in net income and you replace it with a company that, I don't know, earns 10 billion in net income. So that little change there could actually increase the net income, but it also can change share counts. So companies have different share counts. And a lot of times earnings are listed on the S&P 500. You know, if I looked at the analyst estimates for 2024 right now, I, they're anywhere between $240 per share or 250, I think 240 to 245-ish per share. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the things when people quote that, they're like, oh yeah, I'm looking for $220 this year and 23 on the S&P 500. So when you're aggregating a bunch of stuff together, taking companies out and putting companies in can make a little bit of a difference. Sometimes putting one company in and taking one company out could mean that earnings are automatically boosted. Now, the index level, they actually have a, a divisor. And when companies come in and out of the index, they use this divisor so that you know the index is not just the number of shares outstanding times the market cap, because otherwise... If you took a company out or there was a, a split or a merger, you would see drastic drops when that happened in, in the value or increases in the value of the index. So there's a smoothing mechanism that they use. But it, it's I, I'm kind of fascinated by it because I think it's an underappreciated aspect of the S&P 500. And we know we watch the S&P 500 for the earnings and earnings are aggregated together. I remember, and I think I've talked about it before, Jeremy Siegel's book, uh, Stocks for the Long Run. He actually had a section, and I, I think he put it in there, but I remember it was definitely a Wall Street Journal article he penned around 2008, 2009, when he talked about how a few really big companies had losses. You know, it was a kitchen sink quarter where they wrote off everything, that a few companies are really dragging down the, the net income for the whole uh, index because these companies are writing stuff down. So one of the other things that actually changed recently is the idea of there were some restrictions on companies with multiple share classes. And I know some of you might be saying, wait a second, what about Google? Google's actually listed twice. You have, I forget the, the letters that, that uh, uh, go with those. But when you look at the S&P, um, and I think, 
Uh, let me see here if I knew when this started. Uh, I can't remember. But there are some companies in with multiple share classes. But multiple share, this happened with tech companies too. Some tech companies, they have these multiple share classes where maybe the founder has one share of class where he gets you know 10 or 15 votes per share. It has to deal with voting rights. And this is a little bit controversial, but uh, companies, uh, this was in April, end of April, S&P Dow Jones reopens its indices to companies with multiple share classes. And that includes companies going into the S&P 1500, the S&P, you know, the mid-cap 400, small-cap 600, and the S&P 500. And I believe, I think Blackstone is a pretty big company. Uh, they've got quite a, I don't know where they'd fall if they actually went into the S&P 500. I believe they'd be in the top 100 in size of companies. Airbnb is another one. And I haven't looked at all their everything with that company to see if they meet the other criteria. But the fact that they are allowing other share classes or, or companies with multiple share classes in the indice, in the index, I don't know why I keep saying indice, that opens up more possibilities for a company to, to be included in membership. So, And I know you're probably thinking, well, when did they actually – uh, announce when do they put those things in effect? It's not always that when they do the rebalancing and the quarter rebalancing is you know once a quarter things get they need to rebalance the weighting. But usually they meet and they'll decide they'll sort of vote as a committee. They'll decide to kick somebody out and bring somebody in. So uh, keep an eye on that. But I think as you're thinking about this, it to me it's less important about the names in there. And I know people get hung up on that because in theory, if you add a company to the S&P 500, any, let's say an ETF that mirrors the index will now have to buy those shares. Of course, if it's leaving another index and coming to one index, you have to sell the shares in that one and buy this one. Anyway, but more important to me or more interesting to me is that little known thing about what it does to the earnings, the share counts. Uh, the revenues, all those types of things that we look at. I mean, you kind of, I hope you understand. I mean, it, it, as these come in and out, you're changing the dynamic. You're changing the the aggregate list of companies that, uh, that go towards earnings. So interesting stuff there. All right. Last thing I wanted to just touch on real briefly is I know not many people are watching the foreign central banks, but this week, the JGB, which is Japanese um, uh, central bank, or, or JGB is ja- Japanese government bonds. Uh, the BOJ is the Bank of Japan. And they did something that I don't think a lot of people expected, and that's they seemingly got more hawkish. And the reason why I sort of say it like that is They've been doing something called yield curve control. And what is yield curve control? Yield curve control is where a central bank looks at different maturities of government bonds. So, for example, in the U.S., you think about, oh, we have a two-year treasury, a five-year, a 10-year, six-month, three-month, one-month, 20-year, 30-year, all those types of things. But the Bank of Japan has been doing yield curve control. And the way that they've been doing it is they have these bands. 
and they say, let's let's use the the ten year Japanese uh, government bond. They say, well, we don't want to see the band exceed fifty basis points, so half a percent in yield, and we don't want to see it exceed. I think it was minus fifty to positive fifty. I'd have to look at that. But the the more important thing is the they don't want to see bonds uh, the yield on let's say the ten year go above half a percent. And if it started to go up against that or started to exceed that, what they would do is they'd come into the the bond market and they would intervene. I mean, they would they would buy government bonds to push the yields down. Uh, and you know, let's just stick with the the uh, the upper band right now. Well, what they did was they seemed to be introducing quote unquote greater flexibility into the central bank's yield curve control. And they said it was a, a preemptive measure to address inflation risk and allow market forces to drive bond yield pricing while enhancing the sustainability of our easing framework, whatever that means. So what did this do? Well, yields on the 10-year uh, bank of, or JGBs, Japanese government bonds, went above the 50% upper band. And I think they almost hit, you know, 60 basis points. So 60 basis points is 0.6%, right? And that's, it looks to me, that's the highest yield on a 10-year government bond since somewhere around 2015. And then you go back to 2014 as well. This also, so this had the the, also, the effect as well. And this matters, not as much as Europe, but because Japan, uh, the Japanese yen isn't quite as big of a percent of the uh, the dollar index; it's more euro centric. But the Japanese yen gained in strength against the dollar. I mean, the dollar got a little bit weaker; the Japanese yen got a little bit stronger. And currencies, or the relationship between one currency to another, often or really primarily, are it's an interest rate differential. And so, this is just. Uh, May not be anything. Maybe I, I just watch this stuff because there's a lot of carry trades where you're borrowing yen and, and funding, uh, you know, and, and buying some other currency. Uh, it looks like they've, I mean, they, Japan has been doing yield curve control for a while. They're the only economy, really, or central bank, at least a major one, that's uh, still has negative rates at the very short end of the curve. So this was significant. I know a lot of people don't watch this stuff, but I do. And it probably means the yen has the ability to, to gain some strength against the dollar. Who knows whether that will happen or not, but that's the inclination. Uh, if, if rates can, if they're going to go, let them go to 1% before they intervene. And I don't know if this is them changing their policy. I mean, they've, they've essentially had negative to really zero rates forever. Uh, but their stock market has been rallying. Their stock market's been priced higher than it has in many years. I don't think it's gone above the the all-time highs uh, from late 80s, early 90s. I, I should have looked at a, a chart of the, uh, the Nikkei index. Uh, but just keep an eye on this because they are one of the last holdouts to, to really start to raise rates. And I'm not, it doesn't look like they're raising rates, but they are letting the, the Japanese uh, government bond at least 10 years. Uh, they're going to let it, let it float a little bit more, widen the band. So 
something to keep an eye on. All right, folks, that's it for now. And I'm sure Jay will be back next week. Uh, trying to think of if, if I had any recommendations this week. I think I mentioned this one before, but it, it seemed because it's on Amazon Prime, as opposed to Netflix or one of the other ones, I think uh, people may have missed Daisy Jones and the Six. So it's kind of a inspired by a Fleetwood Mac-ish type band. Uh, looks to take place in early 70s, maybe. But uh, I thought it was really good. It actually was nominated for some Emmys. If you, you know, I don't know if anybody watches award shows anymore, but uh, apparently it was uh, put up for some Emmys. And I did finish the second season of The Bear, and I will say kind of halfway through towards the end, I kind of had a thought that the, the writing and the acting in that was almost uh, Succession-esque. Succession, of course, the show on HBO. And you should watch that if you haven't. It's four seasons and that's it. They're done. So anyway, and what I like about that, that Daisy Jones also, it's, it's a one and done. So it's a limited series. So I forget, it's either eight or 10 episodes and that's it. You know, you don't have to get locked into watching season after season. So yeah, check that out. Amazon Prime Video, Daisy Jones and the Six. Hopefully you found this helpful with regards to not only a little talk on, I got to talk about the uh, the Bank of Japan index rebalancing and the fact that apparently the cost of hedging is the cheapest it's ever been. Well, at least going back to 2008. All right, everyone, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, take care. Have a great week.